And if you haven't been here for the past uh, couple of weeks, we've been in Luke. So turn to Luke 16. We're just going to read uh, the first nine verses. So it'll be on the screen. Read with me the word of God. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against, were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, O God, for uh, inspiring the writers of Scripture, Lord God, to record these parables for us and for our instruction that we might be transformed by the truth, the truth that comes from the very mind of God in Christ. We pray now, O God, that you would transform us by this truth and convict and convince us that we may have our minds renewed and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, over the last two weeks, we've covered uh, the parable of the two sons, parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the parable of the two sons. You could call it the parable of a father and two sons. And the background of that story, hopefully you picked up over the last two weeks, part one and part two, in the background of that story, there was, maybe as a secondary or tertiary topic, the proper versus the improper use of wealth and possessions. And in some way, they serve as a metaphor for righteousness, how our hearts are oriented towards our possessions. The Greek word used in the scripture here is mammon, which many people translate as just money, but it really means just all of the possessions of this world. It could be money, it could be possessions. And each brother handles money differently. The younger brother, he squanders his inheritance. He's irresponsible. And the older brother, well, he's stingy with his inheritance. He doesn't want to share it. And it reveals something about their respective hearts. The younger son, again, is irresponsible. The older is stingy. But the, the father, yet, besides the both of them, his attitude is contrasted because the father... His heart is oriented towards radical generosity. And he doesn't cling to his wealth, but freely shares it with his sons. So the parable at the end of chapter 15 of the prodigal son that we just went through is in many ways a ramp up for what we find in 16. So this is this whole section where Jesus is kind of talking about money. And one of the reasons why he talks about money is because the Pharisees love money. The very next verse after the verse I just read 
said, says, now the Pharisees loved money. The Pharisees loved money. And so Jesus talks a lot about money. Some people think that one-fifth to one-quarter, maybe even more of all that Jesus talked about, was money. He used it metaphorically, he used it symbolically, and he often spoke about it literally. And so it's a run-up to what we're talking about. And what Jesus wants to do here in chapter 16, the verses we just read, is he wants to showcase the proper versus the improper use of wealth and the attitudes toward the money of this age to teach us about the age to come. So he takes how we think about money, how people think about money, the money of this world and this age, which will one day pass away as this age passes away, to teach us about what it means to essentially store up for ourselves treasure in heaven for the age to come. Now, on first reading of this parable of the shrewd manager and its unexpected conclusion, it's one of the strangest stories that Jesus tells. At the beginning of the service, I had said that the parable of the prodigal son is the most famous parable. This may be the most bizarre. It's just weird. It's the story of a dishonest household manager who has a terminal confrontation with his boss, and he engages in some serious reflection and comes up with an ingenious solution. The confrontation is a firing. He's getting the ax. And if you've ever been fired before, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you've ever been fired before, you know it leaves you with a really empty feeling. I've never been fired. I was laid off once, and I showed up to work one day on a Friday, and I worked all day, and the boss called me into the office, and without any warning, handed me my last paycheck, asked for my keys and my cell phone and my laptop. And I remember walking out the door, you know, I mean, what just happened? This feeling of emptiness. And um, I had no chance to scheme. I had no chance to plan or to strategize. I remember driving home thinking, wow, this morning I drove into work and I had no idea that I'd be unemployed by the end of the day. You know, it just kind of rocks you. But apparently the employer in this parable wasn't so calculated and gave his manager, the steward of his, his household, enough time to come up and devise a plan from the announcement that he was being fired to him actually being removed. He was able to come up with a cunning plan. And his plan is this. He starts cutting deals with his master's debtors. So if the master of the house is a rich man, he's talking about business deals where where other people are in debt to his masters. Now when you read, when we we just read through the passage, it said 100 measures of oil, we're talking about 875 gallons of oil. That's the literal translation. We're talking about huge sums of debt that these people owed the master of this house. And so the manager decides, his reasoning is really very simple, that in a culture where a gift creates an obligation, he recognizes that all these people will feel obligated to accommodate him when he finds himself on the streets without a job. It's actually quite brilliant. It's a brilliant plan. And so Without a job, without any income, he figures that these people who essentially he slashed their debts by 50%, by 20%, will feel a debt of gratitude and even owe him. And with sums like these, he'll be able to rely on their hospitality for a really long time. 
And doubtless, the master of the house doesn't like having his account swindled, but he's savvy enough to recognize the shrewdness that his manager has shown. Now, we make a mistake if we think that the master in the parable represents Jesus, because it doesn't. All right? this is a lot of, there's a lot of dishonest, shady dealings going on right here. But the master of the house recognizes at least that his manager, who's about to get the axe, has acted in a really shrewd way. And he's essentially said, well played. You know? He's about to give this guy the axe, and he says, you know, well played. And then comes this startling, startling application in verse 8. And Jesus says this. He says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. And the word there for shrewd means wise or thoughtful or sensible or prudent. Now we might want to ask, what's so thoughtful and wise and sensible about this manager's dishonest dealings? Well, he secures for himself a future and insulates himself from further recrimination or prosecution by transferring the wealth of his master, not to himself, but to a third party. These debtors are now indebted to him. And it says in verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. He's a white-collar worker, right? He doesn't got the calluses on his palms to go out into the field and dig, right? But he's got too much pride to beg, and so his decision is that he'll cut these debts in half and find favor with the people who are now indebted to him. And Jesus says something that sounds weird. He says, the sons of this age are wiser in dealing with their own kind than the sons of light. And we might want to ask, well, who are the sons of this age versus the sons of light? Well, uh, the sons of this age would simply be just believers, people, unbelievers, people of the world, the unrighteous in Jesus' mind. And the sons of light would be just God's people, believers, the saints, people who have faith, right? God's people. Now, how can Jesus command, excuse me, commend the, these kinds of actions? He doesn't commend the dishonest actions, but he commends the shrewd determination of the people of this world to secure a future for themselves. It's essentially what Jesus is about to do is give us a good example, a good lesson from a bad example. It's a good lesson from a bad example. Now, Jesus is not praising this shrewd manager for his embezzlement and deception because he acted shrewdly, right? He's not, he's not praising the embezzlement, the dishonest dealings, but he's He's recognizing and commending him that he's acted in a wise way. And his owner praised him because he also acted shrewdly. And it's simply a recognition of the way the world works. Everybody essentially is relatively corrupt. Sinful people act to secure their own future, to benefit in clever and ingenious ways. They use the resources that they have with shrewdness with cunning, whether honest or dishonest, to secure the best future they can secure. And this is how the sons of this age operate. This is what Jesus is saying. 
The people of this world, the people of this age, they act in a way that makes sure that they secure at least their temporal future by doing whatever it takes, sometimes underhanded dealings, to make sure that they fare well, that, they, that, that things turn out okay for them. The people of this age devise and concoct all sorts of schemes, honest or dishonest, to secure a comfortable future. Every scheme imaginable, and it's usually only a question of can I get away with it? So when we think about maybe the power brokers in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, or um, the robber barons, if you could put it that way, the things that people do that in their mind they started out thinking, I'm going to do this because I think I can get away with it, right? You think of the Bernie Madoffs or the Ken Lays of Enron, right? multi-billion dollar schemes that certainly they started out thinking nobody will ever know. We'll cook the books, we'll cover our tracks, and I'll get rich and so will everybody who's in on it with me get rich, right? I mean, that's just the way of the world. And Jesus is essentially not condoning it, but he's recognizing that this is the way often the world works. I'm competing with heavy rain right now, so. Um, but this is the way the world works. The funny thing is, is some of these sums, these big, massive figures of money, are larger than some small country's gross domestic product. Huge sums of money. I don't know about you, but I remember back in the 1980s, the savings and loan scandal, which was worth about half a trillion dollars, and I remember my father just shaking his fist at the TV because one guy got arrested. I mean, the whole thing, one guy got arrested and it was half a trillion dollars. And I just, my father went on for years about the savings and loan scandal. But essentially, Jesus is recognizing this is how the world works. People at the top of legitimate banks and governments and enterprises of the world, they're corrupt, they use whatever means or investment strategies or Ponzi schemes available to multiply wealth, to offer lucrative deals to people who can't sign on the dotted line quick enough. Right? The shrewd manager, he sits down, he says, quickly, how much do you owe my master? Cut it in half. And the reason why the debtors would have written it in their own hand, it was a custom in those days so that they couldn't dispute what they owed. Someone says, I don't owe you a thousand gallons of oil. They'd say, well, isn't this your handwriting? So he says, quick, sit down, write it, you know, write it out with your own hand, this new figure. And of course, they might have said, but how, you know what, I don't even want to know. And they, you know, they grab the pen and they write out the new figure. They were quick to sign on the dotted line, right? People don't ask many questions when someone's presenting them an incredible deal often. They should, you should, we should, but often people don't. When they're told something is going to be lucrative, they can't sign quick enough. And they themselves get sucked into schemes because everybody in the world is trying to take what they've got and multiply it to secure their future. It's just how the world works. And they're good at it. And they're shrewd at it. And there's this cat and mouse game, right? Entire bureaucracies of law enforcement have been created, like the FBI, to catch people doing things like this. I remember in Los Angeles, I had a friend, we'll call him Rick, 
and he was an FBI fraud agent. He was an agent with the FBI in the fraud department. Real riveting and exciting stuff. They don't make a whole lot of crime dramas on, on that kind of uh, law enforcement. But he told me that they were tracking a massive jewelry store in downtown LA over about a decade that they think had embezzled uh, $50 million. And what this person was doing was they would report every couple of years someone broke into the shop and took $600,000 or $800,000 or $1.2 million worth of jewelry. And they wouldn't do it all at once, but every couple of years they'd report a break-in and they'd, re they'd get the insurance money uh, reimbursed, which of course the insurance company was covered by the Federal Trade Commission. And after 10 years of following these people, um, they, had, they had about $50 million worth of claims and they realized the whole thing was a hoax. And Rick told me that when they showed up with the warrant, him and the other FBI agents, that the guy said, um, don't worry, it's no big deal, the government will pay. And Rick said, we are the government. And took him away in handcuffs. Um, and Rick told me later on that it was actually a really good scheme and the guy lived a really good life for a while. But everybody, this is, you know, everybody's got to pay the piper sooner or later. And this is what Jesus is contrasting. What Jesus is contrasting is two types of thinking in the world. That the people of this age do whatever is necessary to secure a temporal future. They're scheming, they're conniving, they're doing whatever they can to multiply themselves, to multiply their wealth, to secure in their minds a temporal future, a temporal living, life in this age. And what he's trying to do is to get us to think about the future, the eternal future, not just the here and now, but the eternal future. And he uses this, he says this statement, he says, so I tell you to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, what could Jesus possibly mean with this statement? Jesus is saying that in the pursuit of your eternal future, you should at least be as shrewd as the sons of this age. You should at least, at least when you're thinking about your eternal future, at the very least, think in prudent and sensible and shrewd ways that mimic the people of this age. It's baffling, kind of, that he would say that, because what does it mean that we could secure eternal dwellings by buying friends? I mean, it seems like such a weird statement from Jesus. Use your money, use your wealth, even though it's part of this unrighteous system of this passing world, to buy friends for heaven who will be standing at the gate to receive you when you arrive. Isn't that weird? Am I the only one who thinks that that's a weird statement? Jesus says, use the money you have to buy friends who will welcome you at the gates of heaven. It's a weird statement. Are you saying, Jesus, that we can buy friends we can buy our way into heaven? Well, no, and yes. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, what's the application point? This is the application point. Those who've been entrusted with worldly wealth, Jesus is saying, need to recognize its limited value. One day it's all going to run out. You can't take any of it with you. That's number one. Number two, use this limited wealth, this this wealth that you have, which one day will run out. You can't take any of it with you and secure that which is of lasting value. And this is a radical idea, I think, for a lot of us because we underestimate the power and the value, the import, the spiritual significance of money in God's sight. The things we value, the things we spend our money on, is just as much a determining factor of where our hearts are with God of how we live. Whether we're faithful to our spouses, whether, whether we cheat or lie or st- you know, on our taxes, whether we harm other people with violence, what we do with our pocketbooks is just as much a factor of what our hearts are oriented to in terms of how we feel about God, how we think about God, how we think about God's word and his commands and our spiritual lives as anything else. The sons of this age try to secure their temporal future with their wealth, and it can do that. You know, Solomon said that money answers all things. It's not the answer, but it does answer a lot of things. If you've, if you've ever struggled to make ends meet, you know that money can make life easier. It just does. And it can answer a lot of things in this life temporally until you die. It can answer a lot of things until it runs out or until you run out. And then it fails. And it will fail. And all the power that the money of this age, the wealth of this age, the possessions of this age, all the power it had to secure a comfortable living will one day run out. And this is Jesus' ultimate point. It belongs to this temporal world. The money of this age is of this age. And it belongs to this temporal world. And yet... In a most amazing and gracious and merciful manner, the Lord says, you can take that wealth that isn't going with you, and while you're here, you can make friends that will welcome you into heaven. How do you do that? How in the world could you take the money you have that's going to expire when this world expires, certainly when your life expires, and buy friends that will welcome you into heaven? Well, it's really simple. You invest in the kingdom. You invest in the kingdom and kingdom enterprises that bring about the salvation of sinners. That's what you do. You use your money to purchase friends in eternity. 
That's why this is such a hard passage because it seems so counterintuitive to the way we think about our lives. But this is essentially what Jesus is saying, and it's kind of mysterious. But this is a significant point he's getting at. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Right? But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the point he's getting at. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know, nowadays, it's not just the moth that breaks in. It's cyber thieves, right? You know, hackers break in and steal. You store up for yourselves treasures in your account that you access, access digitally, and some hacker breaks in and wipes it out. And what Jesus is getting at is that we can store up treasure in heaven, not just with our faith and our life, but even with the things that God has given us. Now, you may want to know, what's the resonance that a statement like that has with us? Well, again, as I started out in the very beginning, I, was, I mentioned the fact that Jesus was often talking to Pharisees who loved money. And so this was like taking a club to a lot of dearly held ideas and shattering what they thought about possessions and wealth. And what Jesus is trying to do is, ultimately orient our heart towards the eternal. To ultimately orient our heart to things that have lasting value that will not run out when your life ends. All of the things we, we, we have right now will one day expire. And what God wants us to do is act in a way that is, at the very least, shrewd in the same way in securing eternal future for ourselves, There's this contrast with this bad example, but there's this good lesson. Now, whenever you talk about giving and money, I can tell you that the preacher always feels really uncomfortable. It's really hard to get up here and talk to people about giving and talk to them about money because there's all, everybody thinks that's all churches want anyway, but we're just walking through the text to see what Jesus has to say. But I can tell you this, when we, when we talk about storing up treasure in heaven, that this church, I don't know what anyone gives here. I don't know what, what, what amounts of money anyone gives, but I can tell you this is a generous church. We have some generous people in this church. But generosity, or and generosity, is just as much a test of where your heart is with God as anything else. And that's the point. Life is short, really short, It goes by in an instant. So should we not also be investing heavily in the age to come, which God has promised will come at his appearing? And how do we do that? By laying up treasure there. If that includes spending money on the right things, then so be it. When it's all gone, we'll still have an eternal dwelling place. The idea, of course, is not that we can buy heaven, but that it's unimaginably irresponsible not to plan for our home when even the people of this world know how to prepare for theirs. Let's pray.